0: following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. You know, this winter weather has got me thinking about the, one, um, the first time I've actually ever gone skiing. And um, I was 13 years old, and I remember going out with some friends. I'd never skied before, and, you know, it I'd, I'd, um, just really didn't seem all that difficult to me. And, and so I went out to the bunny hills. I was just practicing on those smaller slopes for about 30 minutes or so, and I had mastered going down without falling. And so I, in my mind I thought, this is, this is a piece of cake, right? This is really easy. And, you know, even though there was an opportunity to get more instruction from, you know, um, one of the ski instructors there, That just seemed like a waste of time. So I I got on the lift and I went up to the biggest hill. And you know, this is St. Louis, so it's it's not like there's gonna be huge hills there. But I got to the largest hill and I got off the ski lift and I remember looking down and thinking, wow, this is a little steeper than I thought it was gonna be. And I started down the hill and I just began to build up speed, like crazy breakneck Olympic kind of speed. I didn't realize that, you know, when you're going on the big hills, you actually need to slalom, you know, (laughs) so you don't go down, like, really fast. And I'm, I'm just screaming down this hill, and I remember thinking, I'm 13 years old, this is how I'm going to die. I didn't know how to stop, and I was terrified, and lucky for me, there was this grandma that was towards the bottom of the hill. I clipped her skis. We both went tumbling down. And I remember when we came to a stop, we just kind of looked at each other, and she just goes, I'm okay if you're okay. <laughs> and and, and I've, I've never gone skiing again since that day. I've, I know it's sad. I've, I've never gone. And, you know, I think life can be like this at times. You know, we think that we know better. And in our arrogance and in our pride, we find ourselves making poor choices. And before we know it, we find ourselves on a path of self-destruction. You know, I think this is why movies like The Godfather and Fargo and TV series like The Sopranos and, and Breaking Bad have done so well. You know, they, they don't have your traditional happy endings, but they're these very compelling morality tales which examine the destruction that we invite when we embrace the worst parts of who we are. And I think what draws us into these stories and these characters is you know, they embody our sinful nature and our personal struggle for redemption, Uh, Ross Duthat of New York Times, he wrote an editorial a a few years ago um, kind of identifying and and analyzing these two main characters from Breaking Bad and The Sopranos. And he said this, Walter White of Breaking Bad, Tony Soprano, they represent mirror images, a mirror image take on the problem of evil and free will. Walter is a man who deliberately abandons the light for darkness while Tony is someone born and raised in darkness who turns down opportunity after opportunity to claw his way upward to the light. And, you know, when I, when I read those words, when I think about even these characters, uh, this sounds like Jonah to me. You know, a man who deliberately abandons the light for the darkness. A man who has chosen his own path in his own foolishness, and it's a path towards self-destruction. And when I say that, I recognize that it's easy to dismiss Jonah as someone that, you know, we can't really identify with. You know, he has a very unique calling in his life. He has a very unique story. And yet, I think the more that we explore the heart of Jonah, the more we actually find that Jonah is just like us in so many ways. We may not be running from a missions assignment, but I think we've all felt the frustration and the angst that Jonah feels when God asks us to do something that we just, we just don't want to do. Right? We all know what it's like to nurture a rebelliousness in our heart against God that can lead us to some very dark places. And I think we've all experienced moments in our life where we've hit absolute rock bottom, and we have no one to blame but ourselves. And to me, this is the story of Jonah chapter 2. You know, a man who has chosen to rebel against God by running from his presence, a man who is about to come to the end of himself. You know, when we encountered Jonah last week, we saw a man who has received blessing upon blessing from God in his life, even though they were completely undeserved. And we learned that through, though the nation of Israel was living in sin and living apart from God under King Jeroboam II, Purely because of God's grace, they were enjoying this unprecedented season of peace and prosperity. They were recipients of undeserved blessings from God. And yet somehow when God calls on Jonah to extend that same grace that they've, they've received to a despised enemy in Nineveh, we see he just refuses to do it. He can't extend that same grace. And in Jonah 1, we uncover the heart of Jonah, and it's a portrait of evil that's really no different from the wickedness that God wants Jonah to deal with in Nineveh. We see a man who displays a shocking indifference to anyone but himself. A man who has no qualms sleeping inside a boat that's on the verge of sinking in a storm. A man who could not care less about the sailors who are trying to save his life. And through all of this glaring contrast between Jonah and these sailors, we we see how wicked the heart of Jonah really is. He cannot even show the same level of compassion and love that these pagan men who don't even know God show him. You know, the truth is, if God was fair, then the story of Jonah would end with Jonah chapter 1. Right? God calls his prophet to go. The prophet refuses to go. The prophet runs from God. The prophet drowns. It's the end of the story. There's your tragic morality tale. And Jonah's life becomes nothing more than just a motivational poster. But I believe through the book of Jonah, God doesn't just want us to show us the nature of Jonah's heart. But he wants to reveal the nature of his heart. And chapter 2 is when we really begin to see God's heart. You know, at the conclusion of the first chapter, it's clear that we have an all-powerful God who can control the wind and the waves, who has, certainly has the power to, to get his message out to Nineveh, and he doesn't need Jonah to accomplish this, right? I mean, that's very clear. But God is not only interested in the plight of Israel's enemies in Nineveh. He's very much interested in a man who wants nothing to do with him. And so we see this God pursuing this man. And I'm going to read chapter two, but uh, you know, last week we ended on verse 16, so I want to pick up the last verse um, in chapter one as well, verse 17, and read chapter two together. And it says this: And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word and for even this story and this this man that we encounter in this book who we share so many things with. God, we pray that as we dig into your word this morning um, that your spirit would open our eyes not just to our own depravity and our own sin, but the depths of your love, um, the glories of your grace. Reveal to us, Lord, uh, who you are, so that like Jonah, we might be able to respond in praise and thanksgiving to you. It's in your son's name we lift this up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, at the close of chapter one, we find this verse that we've just read, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The Lord appointed. You know, in the midst of all this chaos that's going on, in a moment where no one seemed to have any control of anything, not the sailors, not the ship, not Jonah, we see a God who is above it all, orchestrating every detail, The Lord appointed. And, you know, I love the opening words to chapter 2. After everything that befalls Jonah, it just says these words. It says, Then Jonah prayed. Then Jonah prayed. Jonah did not pray to God when he received his call to go to Nineveh, he doesn't say a word, he just runs. Jonah doesn't pray to God when the storms rock the boat in the seas. He just slept. Jonah doesn't even pray to God when the sailors are pleading with him. Pray to God. Pray to your God. Cry out to your God. Instead, he just asks to be thrown overboard. But now finally, in chapter 2, we find these three words. Then Jonah prayed. You know, it's ironic. A man who is supposed to be a prophet, who's supposed to be God's mouthpiece, is a man who doesn't utter a single word to God in the entire first chapter. And then finally, he turns to God and he prays. And you know, this this may not seem like a big deal to us. We can read that. It happens all the time in Scripture. People turn to God and pray. And yet, I think it's a big deal because the truth is some people will go their entire lives enduring hardship after hardship, sometimes brought upon by themselves, sometimes brought upon by others. And in those moments, I believe God wants nothing more than for us to turn to him and to pray. But for so many of us, those three words never happen. Then, blank, pray. So we find the Lord, he appoints this great fish to swallow up this prophet, and suddenly a man who is virtually mute, who says not a word to God and refuses to say a word to the Ninevites, suddenly this this man has plenty to say, and we find it in chapter 2. In the belly of this fish, Jonah has an opportunity now to reflect upon how he has gotten to this place. And what is remarkable about this prayer is that it comes almost entirely from the book of Psalms. And it's not just one or two passages from the Psalms. It pulls from many different Psalms. It's not a long prayer. And yet here you find references that come from Psalm chapter 3, Psalm chapter 120, Psalm 118, Psalm 88, Psalm 42, Psalm 31. You know, a man who refuses to be the voice of God to others, now he hears the voice of God clearly, and it's through the Psalms. And when does he hear it? in the midst of his downward spiral, while his life is fainting away, as he says. Jonah cannot find his own words to express the depth of his emotions. And so he turns to the one book that can give voice to it. He turns to the Psalms. And as an Israelite and as a prophet, you can be sure that these were all verses that he was familiar with, at least in his head. But there was probably not a moment in Jonah's life when these words were more real to him than they were now. You know, the Psalms has a way of finding the words that we struggle to find, which express the depths of our sorrow, our grief, our frustration, even our hope and our joy. It puts words to the groaning in our spirits that we struggle to find words for And when we come to verse 2, we're told why Jonah prays. He's in distress. He's in distress. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And I think it's important not to gloss over this because the reason why Jonah calls out to God is because he finds himself in a place he does not want to be. And he's in distress. Every part of him, mind, body, and soul is in distress. God has not just orchestrated a fish to swallow Jonah up, but he's orchestrated Jonah to find himself in a place of distress so that he can reveal to Jonah something about himself. And what follows is this. We're told, I called out to the Lord, Jonah says, out of my distress, and he answered me. He answered me. This is such a powerful and simple truth. You know, when we call out that God is ready to answer at a moment's notice. When we cry out in distress, God responds. God is not hiding from Jonah. He's waiting for Jonah, even though Jonah is running from God. He is resisting God the entire time he's so angry, and yet it's not until he comes to death's doorstep when he sees the utter ruin that his will, his choices, his sin has brought him that he finally turns to God. You know, in the first chapter last week, we explored this downward spiral that we see the writer of Jonah um, describe to us, where Jonah goes down to Joppa. He goes down to the ship. And then he goes down underneath the ship. And this whole theme of going downward continues, even in chapter 2, with these opening stanzas of Jonah's prayer. In verses 3 through 6, we see a description of Jonah's continued, steady descent. He says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. You know, Jonah's sinking. He's going downward, and it's because of his own doing. He's coming to not just the end of his life, but he's coming to the end of himself. And he's literally about to hit rock bottom. He's just spiraling downward until he hits what he describes as the roots of the mountains, the seafloor, whose bars closed upon me forever. Now on the seafloor, the sand is enclosing over him and into his watery grave. You know, Proverbs 14.12 says this. It says, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, its end is the way to death. I think this little proverb is a perfect description of Jonah, chapter 1. Jonah thought he was doing right in his own eyes, in his own wisdom. But he was on a runaway train leading to his own destruction. You know, um, I honestly don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard that those who serve as lifeguards, uh, particularly in the ocean, they're, they're instructed to wait if they see someone drowning. Until they've, this person, until the the victim or the person that's struggling in the water exhausts all of their strength. And the the lifeguards are told, you wait before you attempt to save them. And it seems kind of cruel, right, if you think about it, like to watch someone just willingly suffer and go through this process of drowning. And yet, this is the best chance of saving a drowning victim when you're out in these open waters. The reason why these lifeguards are told to do this is because if a person is drowning, if they have any strength left in themselves, in their flailing, in their panic, they may bring you down too. But if they reach a point where they no longer have anything left in themselves, they're much easier to rescue. They will not try to fight when you swoop in and try to save them. And I think this this is a profound picture of God saving of us and even what we find here in Jonah too. You know, as difficult as it is for a loving Father to see us drowning in our own sin, I believe God will often let us struggle on our own strength until we reach a point of exhaustion from trying to save ourselves so that by the time that He comes in, we are no longer fighting His rescue. And we cannot take any credit for saving ourselves. We can only thank Him for His pure act of grace and surrender to His salvation. You know, though Jonah is responsible for his demise, Jonah sees how God has orchestrated even the consequences of his own sin to bring him to this point where he encounters God. He says this, you cast me into the deep. All your waves and billows passed over me. It's really interesting language. You know, if anyone reads chapter one, it's clearly this is If anyone is responsible for what's happened to Jonah, it would be Jonah. And yet, here is Jonah as he reflects. He says, you cast me into the deep. It's your waves that have passed over me. And the truth is, God was using Jonah's own sinful choices to accomplish his greater will. Then just as Jonah's life was about to come to a close, we find God intervene in verse 6. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You know, Jonah goes from wanting nothing more than to flee from God's presence and just completely forget about him to now remembering, and not just remembering, longing for God's presence, longing for looking towards this holy temple where God resided. Jonah finds God waiting for him, and God is waiting for him in the most unexpected of places. It's in the bottom of a seafloor where he has reached the end of himself. And when Jonah reaches a point where he can descend no further, when he's hit rock bottom, this is when God rescues him in the most unexpected of ways. And I think this is God's MO. This is how he works, that God will often bring us to the end of ourselves so that we might find a new life in him. You know, if uh, if I was one of the sailors of this ship, and, you know, and if they were able to see Jonah sinking to the bottom of the sea, only to then witness this giant fish swallowing up, swallowing him up, right, when he hits the bottom, what would be the first thought that crosses your mind? I mean, if I saw that, I'd be like, man, God really had it in for this guy, you know. Like, not only does he stop the storms as soon as we throw him overboard, but, man, this guy gets eaten up by a giant fish. And it's almost like, it's almost funny if it wasn't so sad. But little did they know what God had really was doing. And I think the greatest miracle in the book of Jonah is how God miraculously transforms this, the belly of a fish into a vessel of grace. It becomes a, it becomes a self-contained preserver of life. Anyone else gets eaten by a fish, It's end, end of story, no more, right? Jonah chapter 2 could have ended the whole book of Jonah as well. And yet God took something that should have symbolized nothing more than certain death and he transforms it into a symbol of life and of grace. You know, in Psalm 139, uh, one of the most beautiful passages, I think, in the Bible, we see a God who not only cares about his children, but a God who knows us intimately, who knows us inside out, who loves us. And it's in these Psalms that we find these words that I think um, are so fitting for Jonah and, and the place that he is. It says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. You know, the psalmist in 139 recognizes the utter foolishness of trying to run from a God who is everywhere. But what we learn is that even in our sin, even in our darkest moments, the fact that God is everywhere is not something to fear. It's something to rejoice in. Because that is exactly where God is ready to meet us. That is where grace is found. And God has a way of taking these places of utter darkness and transforming it into light with his presence. And this is why the psalmist can say, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. God's light overcomes the darkness. And this is the story of Jonah and the fish. This is the story of Jesus in the tomb. A place that symbolized nothing but darkness and death. God, through His grace, He transforms into a place of life and of hope. This is the gospel of grace and the power of the resurrected life that we find in Christ. You know, when I think about some of the darkest moments in my own life, um, I've shared this uh, many times before. Um, whether it's struggling in the depths of severe depression or um, just even these dark moments where I recall just lying with my wife on the hospital bed and just weeping, not knowing if she was going to survive her cancer. And in these moments, I, I think about these really dark moments and how God's grace has always been there, patiently waiting, And it's when I have come to these places, sometimes of my own doing, sometimes not, where I've come to the end of myself, that I find God waiting for me as I cry out to Him. You know, this past week, I've been meditating on this passage, and there's been one song that has been playing over and over in my head. It's a song... um, sung by David Crowder, called How He Loves. I just want to read some of the lyrics for you. I know some of you or many of you are very familiar with it. It says, He is jealous for me, loves like a hurricane. I am a tree, bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory, And I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. It says, We are his portion, and he is our prize, drawn to redemption by the grace in his eyes. If his grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. And heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss, and my heart turns violently inside of my chest. I don't have time to maintain these regrets when I think about the way He loves us. Oh, how He loves us. Oh, how He loves us. You know, out of these, this realization that God is there for us, when we um, are most undeserving, when we have fallen to this, the most darkest places, is a revelation that he, his love is so incredible, so supreme, so overwhelming that our afflictions are eclipsed by his glory and everything just becomes shadows in the light of him. You know, the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon once said this, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Can you kiss the wave that God has brought into your life knowing that he is propelling you towards a greater revelation of his love and his grace if we would just fall on him? Let's pray together. And I believe that it's in um, often our darkest places that God's light shines brightest. It's in these places where we are running in our own sin that we are headed towards a path of self-destruction, we find the God of the Bible is not a God who is waiting and who is everywhere so that he can bring judgment upon us when we fall. But he's waiting and he's everywhere to catch us when we fall. And even in our running, even in our desire to be apart from Him, we find a God who pursues after us, who loves us more than He loves Himself, who is so unlike Jonah, who would give up His own life so that we might find life in Him. take a moment and just reflect upon the depths of his grace even in the midst of our great sin. Let's direct our hearts to a place of thanksgiving. Let's thank him for the waves that he brings into our lives that propel us towards him and to his embrace. He's a good God. He loves you more than he loves himself. And his desire is that in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, in our fallenness, that we would fall upon him in his grace, that we would allow him to catch us in our falling.